Hi friends and welcome back to yet another installment of Professor Pastor Paul's Midweek Bible Festival. We are working our way through the lectionary. We are in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. This week our reading is from Mark chapter 1 verses 29 through let's see 39. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. He came out and took her by the hand and lifted her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons. And the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. The word of God for the people of God. Last week's study found Jesus and his first four disciples, Andrew, Simon, James, and John, visiting the synagogue in Capernaum. While they were there, Jesus taught, you remember, as one with authority and not as the scribes. Now, his teaching comprised more than words. However, it also included the healing of a demon-possessed man right there in the synagogue. Jesus' healing is part of his teaching and that most definitely carried authority. This teaching with authority continues in today's reading. The five men walk to Andrew's and Simon's house, who, as was noted in an earlier study, lived there in Capernaum. After they arrive at Andrew and Simon's house, they tell Jesus about Simon's mother-in-law, who is ill with a fever, Let's a little time out here. Pause. Notice Simon has a mother-in-law. Simon, who is to become Peter, has a mother-in-law, which means Simon Peter is married, which means when he left and followed Jesus, he left his wife and most likely some children too. But they tell Jesus, in any case, about Simon's mother-in-law. I guess they saw what Jesus did back at the synagogue, and they figure, well, it can't hurt to ask. If he can cast out the demon, maybe he can heal mother-in-law, too. And he does. He heals her. And then, later that evening, at sunset, it says, at sunset, which I find to be a nice detail, didn't have to be there. At sunset... They hold a large kind of healing party, you know, right there in the front yard. A 
of Simon's and Andrew's house. The whole city was gathered around the door, it says. We are told he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Jesus teaches and heals with authority. So there at sunset, around Simon and Peter's front door, there ends Jesus' first full day of public ministry. His second day starts early, when Jesus rises before dawn and goes out to a deserted place. Evidently, Jesus recognizes that his public life must be balanced by private prayer, a model for all of us, of course. He understands not only his task, but also he understands people and their needs, and surely Jesus knows what is coming. A tsunami of demands is moving toward him. This is why he prays, I think, why he goes away, and also why when Simon and the others find him, he submits to their request. Okay, let us go into the towns and proclaim the message Jesus says to them, for this is what I came to do. This is what I came to do. Jesus says. I love that. This is what I came to do, Jesus says out loud. It's as if he's reminding or even convincing himself of his mission, saying it out loud. Oh, I'd rather stay here in the deserted place in silence and pray, but this, after all, is my job. It's what I came to do. I don't know. That's just what I hear. In any case, Jesus and his disciples went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in the synagogues and casting out demons. Proclaiming the message and casting out demons. Proclaiming the kingdom of God by speaking and healing the sick. Both the words and the deeds carried authority. But for the remainder of this session here, I would like to think about the deeds, Jesus' healings. His miracles. So much of Jesus' ministry, especially in Mark, is focused on what we today call miracles. From today's passage all the way to Mark, let's see, 826, this book is absolutely chock full of miracles. Interestingly, after 826, the miracles mostly stop. But this word miracle, uh, it's Latin in origin. Uh, miraculum is the Latin word. And it is used only six times in the Vulgate Old Testament and is never, ever used in the Vulgate New Testament. The Vulgate, for those of you keeping score at home, is a 4th century version of the Bible uh, translated in the 4th century into Latin. Okay, from the Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And it was uh, is still used often in the uh, Roman Catholic Church, but it is the um, Latin version, essentially, of the Bible. So the word miracle, which is Latin, comes from the Latin, is only used six times in the Vulgate Old Testament and never in the Vulgate New Testament. Words like wonders and signs and mighty deeds show up plenty 
all over the Bible, and especially in Mark and the New Testament. Signs, mighty deeds, wonders. These are the words for what we now call miracles. This is not to say, of course, that no miracles occurred in the New Testament. That would be, that would be silly to say such a thing. But it is to suggest that our 21st century understanding of miracles may not be consistent with how the biblical authors understood such events. To sort of explain what I mean by that, we're going to sort of lift up above our text for the day and take a broader look at miracles in Scripture and in general. Because it seems that maybe they don't happen as much anymore. They do seem pretty rare these days, miracles. Suffering is widespread and seems arbitrary, and science seems to explain so much, and this word miracles has had a hard run of it lately. Now, let's look at the Bible. What we call miracles, what the Bible calls wonders, signs, and deeds of power, occur throughout the pages of Scripture. The Bible is saturated in miracles. In the Old Testament, earthquakes rumble, locusts swarm, rivers turn to blood, rainbows grace the sky, floods cover the earth, hungry lions do not eat, rods become snakes, Great ghostly hands write on walls, donkeys talk, storms churn the sea, bread falls from heaven, and on and on, all at God's hand. In the Gospels, new stars shine, virgins give birth, people are raised from the dead. They levitate and are healed of blindness, leprosy, lameness, demon possession, and other grave ills, as in our text today. In the book of Acts, after the Gospels, more healings take place, more earthquakes rumble, prison doors are opened, viper bites are rendered ineffective, people suddenly fall dead, and so forth. Now, the authors of Scripture clearly viewed these events as wondrous, miraculous, but were they all equally miraculous in the modern sense of the term? Were they equally all wondrous? No. On one hand, you have rainbows and storms at sea. Now, those things happen all the time. And today we explain these things in purely natural terms. Rainbows. I tell my students at the college how rainbows work. And we often don't really feel the need to bring the supernatural into it. So we label these events non-miraculous. Storms at sea, rainbows, non-miraculous. On the other hand, you have the virgin birth and people being raised from the dead, which do not happen all the time. Today we explain these events in purely supernatural terms. We label them miraculous. Finally, you have all the others in the middle. We have healings, new stars, locusts, strangely timed earthquakes, lions that refuse to eat, and so forth. These events fall somewhere between the extremes of natural and supernatural. Today we might explain some as purely natural, and some we might describe as purely supernatural. But we as modern people feel the need to place these events in one of two boxes, natural or supernatural. Right? Was it a miracle? Was it not a miracle? 
Somebody survived an operation they weren't expected to survive. Was that a miracle or not a miracle? We feel some pressure to separate them into one of two boxes. The biblical authors felt no such need. When these stories of Jesus healing come across the pages of Scripture, those who wrote them, those who read them, recognized them as miraculous, but had no reason to separate them in any absolute way from other events. The biblical authors felt no such need to separate into boxes of natural and supernatural because for them, importantly, the division between natural and supernatural, between non-miraculous and miraculous, did not exist. Now, miracles were special events, that's why they were written about, but they were easily integrated into a world in which Yahweh, among other agents, acted everywhere, sometimes in small ways, sometimes in big ways, but all the time and with human beings in mind. There were miracles and there were non-miracles. There were signs of wonder and there were events that were not signs of wonder, but no bright line was drawn between them. No bright line was drawn between them. Miracles are woven seamlessly into the Bible's sort of cosmic tapestry. So when Jesus drives out demons and heals diseases, he is acting in precisely this biblical cosmos, which is not the same as ours. Now it's the same world, right? It's the same planet Jesus walked on, but we see it differently than he did. We see it differently than the authors of Scripture did. And here comes my own little soapbox. I don't bring it in every week, but I can't help thinking about it. As much as I love science, one of its effects is that it has disenchanted the world. I don't mean enchantment in a magic way. I mean enchantment in a sense of, of sacredness. It's desacralized the world, is what I mean to say. That's often been the effect of science. Which, by the way, is not always a bad thing. The ancients had no way to explain rainbows or earthquakes or healing, so they often used God as an explanation. Oh, I don't know how the lightning happens. God made it happen. I don't know how, why the thunderstorm, why the earthquake came. Maybe it was God that made it happen. Back then, surely people were quicker to explain things they didn't understand in terms of divine intervention. And these days, we don't talk about every volcano or earthquake or even healing in theological terms. And this is fine, really. We have learned a lot. But maybe our gullibility simply runs in the opposite direction. If past generations were too quick to see the hand of God in all things, the deliberate hand of God in all things, Perhaps we are, too quick, we are too quick to see blind, impersonal forces in all things. What I would like to suggest is almost, I'm not really a back-to-the-Bible kind of guy, but I would almost like to suggest a back-to-the-Bible view of miracles. We ourselves, mostly since the scientific revolution, have invented the division between the natural and the supernatural. And that division does not correspond to anything in reality. As science fiction pioneer Robert Heinlein put it, supernatural is a null word. But if this is true, 
then natural must also be a null word. There is one world. We live in it. Jesus lives in it. And God is always working in it. Sometimes this looks like just another day. And sometimes it looks just like a miracle. But God is always there, always drawing us toward new understanding and new life. Just, just ask Simon's mother-in-law, she'll tell you. It's true. Just ask all who Jesus healed then and now and ever since. It is true. That's what I have for you this week. So amen and amen. See you next week. We'll pick back up on the trail with Jesus and the boys. Bye-bye now.